Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6. We continue walking through 1 Samuel. If you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via our live stream. So many join us each and every week, and we're grateful that you're worshiping with us. Also, the venue service, meeting right down the hall, and Reach Church DeSoto. Very, very grateful that all of you are worshiping with us. 1 Samuel chapter 6. You know, oftentimes we come to a passage like this and dealing with the Philistines, dealing with idolatry, dealing with the ark, and we have a tendency to kind of think to ourselves, how in the world could this be relevant to our lives? I mean, what, what relevancy could, could chapter 6, or really all of 1 Samuel, really have to do with our lives? I'm here to tell you today, this chapter, all of it in fact, but this chapter in particular is of very significant relevance to our lives today. One of the questions that I often get asked is, how are the Old Testament saints saved? My answer is this, same way as you and I. Salvation has always been an issue of faith, and faith specifically in Messiah, faith in in Christ the Messiah. So the Old Testament saints, they placed their faith in a Christ who would come. We place our faith in a Christ who has come. In fact, you'll remember as we study Genesis after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, right after that happens in chapter 3, Genesis uh, 3.15, God gives the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, and God tells them, he gives the solution to the sin problem that I'm going to send somebody who will defeat sin, Satan, and death, and he'll be wounded in the transaction. That I'm going to send somebody who's going to make things right, but he will die. He will shed his blood. In fact, in the very next chapter, you have Cain and Abel. And Cain, when it comes time uh, to offer to the Lord, he decides that I'm going to offer the first of my crops. I'm going to bring the fruit of my hands. In other words, I don't want to sacrifice. Sacrifice is the sign of the promise. I don't want to trust in God's Messiah. I want to trust in my own good works. I don't want to have to go to Abel and get a lamb to sacrifice. I'd rather give my own gifts. Man will always default to trying to earn his salvation on the basis of his good works. And guess what God says? I'm not going to accept it because that's not the way you come to me. And Abel, on the other hand, will offer a blood sacrifice. God will accept it because you come through faith in the Messiah who would die. Now, how do we know that? How did they know that? They only knew it through the word of God. We can learn a lot about God in creation. We can learn there is a God. The heavens are telling of his glory. Romans chapter 1, no no man has an excuse before God. We can learn a lot about God. But in order to know the way in which we come to him, God's got to speak. Apart from God's word, we wouldn't know who God is. We wouldn't know who we were. We wouldn't know the problem of our lives. And we wouldn't know the only solution. So there's only one way you come to God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And we don't know that way apart from the word of God. Now, when we come to this text, we got a problem. Because the Philistines, as a Gentile nation, they don't have the word of God. So they're going to learn a lot about God. But they don't know the way to God because they don't have the word of God. Now, where should they have gone? They should have gone to Israel. Where do we go for truth? The God of Israel. Now, the problem is, if they go to Israel, what do we know about Israel at this point in in 1 Samuel chapter 6? The word of God is rare. 
Uh, and in fact, now we've got a confirmed prophet in Samuel, but they're not listening to him. And so what you have in this chapter, the great issue of this chapter, is you've got both Jew and Gentile who don't know the way to approach God because they've either neglected or they don't know the word of God. There's only one way to approach God. The great question of this text is, how do sinners approach an offended God? That's the question. Let's pray together. We'll work our way through this passage. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly to us about who you are, who we are, why we are broken, why we are sinful, and the only means of salvation. God, I pray if there's anybody here today, maybe watching online, that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you'd open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Speak through your word and by your spirit, convict them of sin and draw them to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, look with me, chapter six, verse one. Uh, The ark has been taken captive by the Philistines. The hand of God is heavy upon them. Look at chapter six, verse one. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. So it's there seven months, kind of passed around from city to city. Why seven months, though? That was my question. I don't know about you. If I'm breaking out in tumors and mice are running around, it would probably only take me about three months. And I would have said, all right, we've got to figure out something here. Why in the world seven months? You want to know why? Because they're stubborn. You know, one of the great issues of people coming to God is pride. Men don't like to be told they're wrong. Men don't like to be told they're sinners. We like to be told we're good people. And if we just try hard enough, we'll get there. We don't like to be told we're sinners. We don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't like to be told that we've offended God. And we don't like to be told that God is the only way. And in order to come to him, you've got to submit to him. And so the Philistines, the idea is if you just give us enough time, we can figure this deal out. We're, we're strong enough, we're smart enough to figure it out on, my, on our own. But they've come to the end of their rope. And it says in verse two, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. So they call for the priests and the diviners. Earlier in chapter five, they go to the Lord's. Uh, now they're gonna go to the priests. They, they move from the politicians. Now we're gonna go start talking to the pastors. The idea here is there's a recognition, a realization that what we're dealing here is, with here is not natural, it's supernatural. They're beginning to have an understanding the real issue is not physical, it's spiritual. So we can move the ark wherever we want to move it, but it doesn't solve the problem. Because the problem is not the ark, the problem is we've offended God. And we've got to somehow make this right with God. It's amazing as you work your way through this passage, it's amazing the grace of God beginning to open their eyes to the truth of who he is. So they realize we can move the ark where we figured that enough out. God's bigger than a box. You know what they're realizing? You can't run from God when you've offended him. Uh, As Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And so they can run, but they can't hide. Look at verse Uh, Verse three, they said, if you send away the ark of the God, do not send it away empty, but you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed and it'll be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. 
There's an amazing amount of knowledge that they glean here. They understand that they're guilty. Uh, They get some kind of idea of a guilt offering. Maybe they got it from Israel. Maybe they've learned enough from Israel. They've learned about guilt offerings. But here's the idea. They know this, that they're guilty before God, and they understand that just recompense must be paid. In other words, we've We've sinned against, we've offended a holy God, and we can't come to him empty-handed. A payment must be made. Now, look at what they come to the understanding when it comes to payments. Look at verse 4. Then they said, what shall be the guilt offering which we shall return to him? And they said, uh, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on all of you and on all your lords. There's also an amazing understanding here. They understand that they're all guilty. Uh, we're all guilty on all of us. I mean, you can't just blame this Lord or that city. We're all guilty. But when it comes to the payment that needs to be made, uh, they're in the dark. They don't know. Uh, they've learned a lot about God. They've learned, uh, they've learned that God is, is holy. They've learned that God is sovereign. They've learned that they're guilty. They've learned that they're sin. They know that just recompense must be paid. But when it comes to the penalty and the payment that needs to be made, they have no truth or word from God. So they're just kind of groping in the dark, left to kind of figure it out on their own devices. And, and what we know is man in his default position will always seek to earn salvation on the basis of his good works. How many times have you been with somebody, you share the gospel with him, you ask him why in the world should God allow you into his presence forever in heaven and they say because I did this or I did that and they begin to give you their moral resume of all the good works they've done they have a works-based salvation that's a false gospel and will not save and so these Philistines they understand that whatever gift we got to give it's got to be costly so they're going to give gold and we're going to give the works of our hands but it's not an acceptable sacrifice before the Lord so while They're sincere, and by the way, I do think they're sincere in this, but is it possible to be sincerely wrong? There's a lot of people who are sincere in their belief, but it's a false belief, and they're wrong. And so they're they're, they're gonna offer the best of their hands. Uh, They're gonna default to, we're gonna try to impress God with the offering that we bring. Verse five, so you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he'll ease his hand from you, your gods and your land. The part that stood out to me in this, um, as I was studying this this week, read this story many times, the, the part that just stuck out to me is you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Remember this, God does nothing except for his glory. God does everything for his glory. Uh, Why would God allow the ark to be taken, to be taken captive? For his glory. God's gonna get glory from the Philistines. He's gonna get glory from this pagan nation. And they're going to have to imagine this. They defeated Israel in battle, and now they're going to have to acknowledge that God... The God that's supreme is the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You talk about humbling this nation. You remember Naaman the leper? Uh, Naaman the leper is Syrian captain, powerful man. But he's what? He's a leper. And uh, he hears about this guy in Israel 
who is really good at healing people. So he goes over to Israel. He goes to meet with Elijah. And Elijah sends down his servant Gehazi. And Gehazi goes out to meet with him and says, what do you got to do? You got to go dip seven times in the Jordan. You know what I think Naaman was probably thinking? I got much better rivers back in Syria. Why do you guys think your river's so special? Naaman, you got to humble yourself. Go get in the Jordan River because the one true God is the God of Israel. It's an amazing picture here. God is going to get glory from this pagan nation. Look at verse 6. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? So apparently there's still some people giving a little bit of kickback. There's some that are a little bit hesitant. Hey, maybe, if you get, maybe we need to try something else. I'm not sure we want to go down this road. I'm not sure we want to humble ourselves before God just yet. Don't sure, not sure that we want to admit we're wrong. Maybe, let's let just give us a little more time. And the priestly diviners say, hey, take a warning from Egypt. And the idea is you don't oppose God and win. God always wins. That's the message. So you can keep hanging on for as long as you want, but just expect the tumors and the mice to keep happening. You can oppose him, but the Egyptians did, and they ended up losing their firstborn, and their army got drowned in the sea. Or you could just humble yourself before God. The picture that we continue to see in Samuel is God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so this is a nation, they're still somewhat stubborn, and the priests say, take a warning from Israel. You don't oppose God. Look at verse seven. Now therefore, so they're gonna create a little test. We wanna see if God's in this. Now therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milch cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the, heart, or, or to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. Watch, if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then he has done this great evil. But if not, then we will know what it was, uh, that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So they set up a little test. We're gonna find out if this was just coincidental or if God is really in this. And they set up what is an impossible task. So they're gonna take a new cart, a great idea. We're gonna give God the best. We, don't want, we want to give something that's sacred to God. We're going to give a new cart. And we're going to take two milch cows that have never known a yoke. So they're not trained. They've never done this before. Not only are we going to take untrained, uh, never been yoked milch cows, but we're going to separate them from their calves. Any of you all know what it's like to try to separate a mama cow from her calf? You will get run over, and they will leave tread marks on your back. You don't separate a mama cow from her cab, but that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take their calves away from them. We're gonna put them on a yoke they've never known. We're gonna set them down this path and see if they will go straight to Beth Shemesh. It's an impossible task. Now, by the way, when you're trying to discern the, God, the will of God, this is not a good way to do it. Um, God is gonna be gracious to the Philistines and allow them to do their little test, but even God is gracious to Gideon. You remember with the whole flea steal, but that is not the way to discern. There's a lot of people who say, well, I don't know if God's want me to go on this mission trip. I'll know if that light turns green before my car gets right up there, then that must mean God's telling me to go. Not a good way to discern God's will. Pray about it, search scripture, wise and godly counsel, and by all means, use some Holy Spirit-inspired common sense. That's how you discern the will of God. But they're gonna set up this test. God's gonna oblige them. 
But you know what they're thinking. There's no way. There's no way this happens. They know enough about these cows that in their mind, there's no way it's going to happen. Well, look at what God does. Verse 10, the men did so and took two milch cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the, the cart in the box with the, the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beshemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beshemesh. It's amazing. There's no driver of this cart. Who is driving the cart? God is. God is going to drive these animals. They're going to take a straight path. They're not going to turn to the right or the left. A milch cow, a nursing milch cow is always going to want to do what? They're going to want to graze. They're going to want to go over and eat. These milch cows will uh, uh, neglect the very basic instincts of their life as God drives them straight towards Beth Shemesh. And it says they went lowing. Uh, I looked up lowing this week. I was wondering, is that, it's just a moo, all right? It's just a, I found that out. You don't want to hear me moo. I thought about doing that, but I've got to retain some level of dignity. But uh, it's just a moo. Uh, they're mooing as they go. But the idea is that they're in pain. Uh, that they know they're following, God is impressing upon them to do his will, but it's painful. They're neglecting the basic instincts of their life. It's another way of God demonstrating that these aren't some messed up cows. They understand that they are being driven by God to do his will. Well, look at what it says in verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. So the men of Beth Shemesh are reaping, meaning that they carried on with their everyday, ordinary lives. Matthew Henry in his commentary likened this to the people of Haggai working on their paneled homes while the temple of God lied in ruins that they're more interested with their own lives. The, the hand of God has been, the glory of God has been removed from this nation. And guess what they do? They just continue going through the motions of everyday life. It was a very uh, frightening thought when I thought about this week, how God could remove his hand from churches and people. And yet they don't even know it. And they just continue going on through the motions. Uh, Lord, I pray that we are always a church that if God leaves, we'll know it. But these people, they're just going through the motions of life. And all of a sudden, God is going. Can you imagine their amazement when they look up and see two cows with a yoke and a cart? And nobody's driving them, and they're coming straight towards them. In the picture here, as we saw last week, if God is going to bring salvation to this nation, who's going to have to do it? God himself. The nation is not moving in repentance. They're not naturally inclined to turn towards God. They're not, they're not seeking to get the ark back. They're not going after God. But God is going to come after them. It's a good reminder to us all. Listen, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, can you go through seasons where maybe you get off path and you're not, you're not walking in fellowship as you should? Maybe you're walking in disobedience for a period of time. But what do we know about a true believer Sooner or later, they'll do what? They'll come back. 
Not because they're that good, but because God is good. And what God starts, he always finishes. That being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This nation is his chosen people, and he won't let them go. You may wander, I'll come back to you. And so here he is coming back, and it says they, they lifted their eyes and they rejoiced. They raised their eyes. They, they go from focusing on the earthly and their crops and whatever else was on earth, and they lift their eyes. God is always calling his people to lift their eyes. You want joy in your life? Stop focusing on the earthly and turn your attention to the eternal. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. So God lifts their eyes. They raise their eyes and they see again the glory of God and there's joy in their heart. Why is there joy? Because there's something greater than simply trying to make a living and have your help and seeking prosperity. And it's having God in your life. And what this nation is learning is they can have everything else, but if they don't have God, it doesn't matter. And so God is coming to them. He lifts their eyes. There's joy. And look at what it says. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of Joshua, the Beshemite, and stood there where there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. This to me is amazing. It's a demonstration that God is sovereign over that These cows know exactly where to stop. And they come into the field of a man named Joshua. You know what Joshua is in the Hebrew? It's Yeshua. You know what Yeshua is in Aramaic? Jesus. They come to the field of Jesus, a Beth Shemite, uh, Beth, Beth Shemesh, it, probably named by Canaanites, but it means house of the sun. And here as God comes in, the light of God is going to begin to shine on this nation. Beth Shemesh was also in the tribe of what, what tribe can you think of? The tribe of Judah. It was also designated as a Levitical city. And you know what group of Levites actually served in that town? The Kohathites. And you know what the one responsibility of the Kohathites was? To take care of the ark. Do you think this ark just so happens to find its place in the field of Jesus, the house of the sun, a Levitical city in the tribe of Judah, and it stops at a big rock of sacrifice that you might just want to call Calvary. God is good, amen. What a powerful picture of God's sovereignty over every, he is sovereign over every aspect of this story. Moving it along in a perfect accordance with his plan. Look at verse 15. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was, was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. So they take the, these cows, they offer them unto the Lord. They're female cows according to the law. You bring male cows, but in this case, God accepts it. And they, they, they have sacrifice there. And, and you'll notice at the end of verse 15, they burnt offerings and sacrifice. Sacrifices, plural. So it's, it appears that all of a sudden, all these people start coming and making sacrifice to God. Almost call it a revival. One sacrifice inaugurating a whole bunch of men and women coming to worship God. 
Verse 16, when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. It's amazing what these Philistine lords have seen. They've seen the powerful hand of God. They've recognized that God is holy. They've recognized that God is sovereign. They have seen his powerful hand of judgment and wrath. They've recognized that they've sinned against God. They know that payment must be made. They've seen God, that this is not coincidence. God's hand is on this. And they have now seen the sign of the promise, which is sacrifice. But every indication is that they do not repent and turn. In fact, what it says here is they go back home. Is it possible to see God's powerful hand and to see God's power all around you and to understand that God is holy and to understand that you're a sinner and to understand that payment must be made but never fully place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation? Yes, it is possible. And so here are these Philistines, and they, go, they just go home. I was reminded, you remember Ruth, the Moabitess? Ruth, the Moabitess, Naomi says to Ruth, go home. And Ruth says, I'm not going home. I've seen too much. I've seen the hand of your God, and your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I'll die. I've seen too much to go back. The Philistines just go back, return home, witnesses to what they've seen. Then in verse 17, we, we get a description. These are the, the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and of country villages. This whole nation is going to give glory to God. And how are they humbled? Not by a mighty army, not by some great warrior. They're humbled simply by the powerful hand of God. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And it says at the end of verse 18, the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua, the Beshemite. Can you imagine the oral tradition that must have continued after this? Every time they passed that ark and a dad with his little son or daughter, dad, what, what's that stone? What's the significance? Well, let me tell you. That's, uh, that's Jesus' field. That's Joshua. That's Yeshua's field. And the ark of the God was returned there to demonstrate that God always wins. God is always faithful. He'll never leave us. What a powerful testimony and a picture of God's sovereignty and the salvation he would bring. Look at verse 19. He the story kind of takes a strange turn here. He, he struck down some of the men of Beshemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people, 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck down the people with a great slaughter. Now, very briefly here, some of your translations don't have 50,070 men. It just has 70 men. Um, so there's some discrepancy here. The early Hebrew manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts say, uh, it says 70 and 50,000 men. And there are some who believe that there's no way that Beth Shemesh could have had 50,000 men, so we gotta go with the shorter number. There must have been an error in the manuscript. I don't know. I just happen to believe God can do whatever he wants to do. But 50,000 or 70 men, either way, the message is clear, isn't it? Um, in the Old Testament, God's message to the people of Israel is no one just wanders into my presence. You don't come into the presence of God unauthorized. The priest only went in one time a year. 
only went in one time a year into the sacred place. Nobody else gets to go, just him. Uh, you see other examples. Uh, king Uzziah was a really good king, but he got prideful. And he says, you know what? I'm going to go into the presence of God and offer incense. And what happens to him? The priests say, don't do it. What happens? He's struck with leprosy. You know what God's saying? You don't just enter into my presence. You remember uh, Adab and Abihu? They offer strange fire, Leviticus 10, strange fire before the Lord. And what does God do? Consumes them with fire. The sons of Korah, we want to be priests too. We think we ought to have the right to go before God. You know what God does? Breaks forth the earth and swallows them up, which is a pretty good indicator you're not heading in the right direction. You know what the message of God in the Old Testament is? You don't come into my presence unauthorized. I am a holy God. And you will not fear my holiness. You'll bear my wrath. So why in the world would these men, if that was the message, in fact, at Mount Sinai, you remember God told Moses there, put up a fence around here because they may come too close and be consumed. What would cause the men of Beth Shemesh to somehow think, well, they can just go to the ark and start opening up this holy, sacred thing of God? I don't know. Maybe, maybe they got really familiar with the presence of God. Maybe they just got so familiar. And, and, you know, just in my own personal life, it was a good reminder to me. Yes, we can cry out to God as Abba, Father. And, yes, we can come boldly into his presence through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But let us never forget when we go before God, we go before a holy God. And we don't go before him in a flippant attitude. Listen, you can take your complaints to God. God is big enough to handle it. But if you do so, you better come humbly in a recognition that he's holy. And so the, the, the picture here is you don't just wander into my presence. Maybe they had become too familiar. Maybe it was genuine. Maybe they were afraid that some of the Philistines had taken something out of the ark. We just got to check and see what's in it. We don't know their motivation, but the message of God is clear. You don't enter into my holy presence unauthorized, and no one gets a pass. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. The Philistines learned the hard way. Now Israel's learned the hard way. You don't enter into my presence unauthorized. And so guess what it causes them to do? In verse 20, they're going to ask a question, an important question. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall go up from us? You know what their question is? If God is this holy, who in the world could ever stand before him? That's a great question. It's a great question. It's the overriding question of the Bible. You know the question that so many people have? The question that so many people have is, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's the question. So many people, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Can I just be honest with you this morning? The word of God has no problem with that. The Bible has no issue with that. You know why? Because the Bible declares something very clearly. God's far more holy than you can possibly understand. And you're far more sinful than you can possibly comprehend. The Bible has no problem with that question. Do you know what the overriding question of the Bible is? Not how can a loving God send anyone to hell. The question of the Bible is how can a holy God let any of us into his presence? That's the great question of the Bible. How are any of us as sinners ever going to get before God? He's holy. And so these Israelites 
instead of seeking God in humility and repentance, they just kind of throw up their hands. In fact, they react the same way as the Philistines. Look in verse 21. So they sent the messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up from you. Kiriath-Jerim, probably technically in the boundary of Israel, but not really even an Israelite city. But the idea is, same as the Philistines, we can't handle this. Just, send, just get him out of here. We don't know what to do with him. Do you know the sad part about this? The, the really sad part about this is the answer to their question was right in front of them. The answer to their question was built into the construction of the ark. Because the ark, when it was constructed, on the top of the ark was these two cherubim, these golden angels. And in the middle of the two angels above the ark was a place known as the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, the priest would enter one time a year, and he would take the blood of an unblemished lamb. And he'd take the blood of an unblemished lamb, and he'd sprinkle it on top of the ark, the mercy seat. And what was inside the ark? Inside the ark was the law of God. And the law of God was constantly bearing witness to what? To the sinfulness of man. That's what the law of God does. It shows us that we're sinners. And so the law of God and the ark of God was bearing witness before God that all of us are sinners. All have fallen short of his glory. But what that priest would do, he'd take the blood of an unblemished lamb and he'd sprinkle it on top of the ark, the mercy seat, so that now God, in a symbolic way, as he looked down upon his broken law, he would instead see the blood of an unblemished lamb. And now God, through the sign of the promise of sacrifice, God was able to extend mercy to a people who believed and trusted in the lamb who would come. It's right there in front of them. Um, what's amazing about this, I wish we had time, in Romans 3.25, Paul says of Jesus, he's talking about how we come to faith and salvation, both Jew and Gentile alike, and he says that Jesus in Romans 3.25 is our propitiation. You know, propitiation is the Greek word, illisterion. Do you know what it literally means? Mercy seat. In God good. That mercy seat was pointing them. It was just a symbol pointing them to the substance of Christ as John the Baptist would see Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes. He lives a perfectly sinless life. He dies on a cross for our sins. He sheds his blood. And now as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ is applied to our account. The righteousness of God is imputed to us so that now as God looks down upon us, he sees us not in light of our sin, but he sees us in light of the righteousness of Christ imputed to our accounts by faith. God has declared this is the only way. It's through faith. In fact, what's amazing about this in chapter 7, I don't want to tip my hand too much, but they're going to go to Samuel. And Samuel's going to say, repent, all of you. Acknowledge your sin. And then you know what Samuel's going to do? He's going to do something they haven't been doing. He's going to offer sacrifice as a sign of the promise, and then the good hand of the Lord will again rest upon this nation. Why? Because there's only one way to have fellowship with God, and it's through faith in the promised Messiah. There's a lot of people out there, they want God to change. They want God to somehow, well, God, why can't you just change and let these people go in? I mean, they're sincere. Why don't you change to accommodate our sinfulness? Listen to me this morning. God is unchanged. 
He is unchanging. He is holy. He is just. He is loving. But he's not changing. God doesn't change. We change. We change. God doesn't move. We move. Maybe some of you have heard the story of the, the ship that's on the sea. And it looks out in the distance and they see a light. And uh, the captain of the ship radios the light in the distance, says, please change course 15 degrees. The light radios back and says, you change course 15 degrees. This man is very irritated. He grabs the mic and radios back and says, I'm a captain. Change your course 15 degrees. The light radios back and says, I'm a seaman first class. Change your course 15 degrees. Now he's really mad. And he says, son, this is a battleship. Change your course. The light radios back and says, I'm a lighthouse. Change your course. Listen, God isn't changing. We change. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you're watching online and you're in this room, I don't know how you think you're going to stand before God. Maybe you've been trusting in your good works. Maybe you think that somehow God is going to be impressed with your righteous deeds. Listen to me. When you stand in the presence of a holy God, you're going to understand something really quickly. He's far more holy than you thought he was. And you're far more sinful. And God has only provided one solution. He is not a solution. He is the solution. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is the way to God because he's in keeping with the truth of God. And therefore, he alone bestows life. Whereas Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. I'm asking you today, God's not changing. Would you change? Would you change your mind about who you are and about who God is? I was reminded of this this week as had a chance to meet an individual who's going to be running for political office and got a chance to sit with them, talk with them about some of their views. And I had a chance to tell them, you know, it's great. We're very thankful for our politicians. We'll be praying for you. But I was able to tell them, you know, the only hope that we have for changing our nation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things I've learned, very few people, if you just sit and argue with them or debate with them, will change their minds on their political views. It may happen sometimes there are people who will change and evolve in their political views, most of the time just because life hits them. But rarely will be somebody be argued into a new political view. Can I tell you what you also can't argue somebody into? Faith in Jesus Christ. God has to move into a person's heart and he has to change their mind about who they are and who God is. And by God peeling back the blinders, they see Jesus Christ as their only means of salvation and they place their faith and hope in him. Listen today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, change, repent, and place your faith in God's means of salvation.
Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for your word today that speaks so plainly to us about who you are, who we are, and the way in which we approach you. God, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would convict them. We know that salvation is your work. I can't convince anybody. I can't talk anybody into it, but I know the power of your word, and I know the power of your spirit. And so I pray, Lord, that you might move in somebody's heart today. God, that you would show them the depth of their sin. You would show them the beauty of Christ who came and shed his blood for their sins. I pray that they would run to you and know your forgiveness and your freedom. God, today, as the author of Hebrews said, if they hear your voice, I pray they wouldn't harden their hearts. God, I pray that they would submit to you and know your freedom. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.